You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 88, Eastward with Jesse Alexander. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'd like to thank those of you who support the show on Patreon. None of this would be possible without you. Anyway, after a string of dense and momentous episodes... I thought it might be time for a change of pace, and I had a chance to interview someone whose work I enjoy, so I took it. But before we jump into the interview, I should say that we'll be talking mostly about Napoleon's invasion of Russia. This was recorded about a month ago, and I don't think either one of us suspected that there would be another full-scale war raging in this part of the world when the episode was released. It should go without saying that we do history on this show, not current events. Nothing in this episode is intended as commentary on the events of the last few weeks, and we didn't go into this with any agenda beyond entertaining and educating. So I hope you can all enjoy this episode in the spirit in which it was intended, and that this little disclaimer will be outdated very, very soon. Without further ado, I'll let Jesse take it away. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm a public historian. I'm originally from Canada, but I've been living in Vienna for quite some time, and that's where I got my MA from the University of Vienna. But some of your listeners, if they're into YouTube, might have stumbled across the Great War Channel or the Real Time History Channel, and that's uh, where I do a lot of my work these days, because I work with Real Time History as their sort of, well, I guess you could say, chief historian on the team. So that's a lot of fun, and that's uh, probably my most public project that I'm involved with. Great. And um, real-time history, tell us about that. Sure. They're an awesome kind of new media, if I can still use that term, it sounds old now, uh, startup production company out of Berlin. And they kind of grew out of the Great War Channel team, because when the Great War When it sort of had a change in 2018, the former host left, the parent company stopped the project, but two members of the team, Flo and Tony, they wanted to continue with the channel. They felt that there was more to the story of the Great War than the end with the armistice in November 1918. So they created a company and then we've ended up working together on a bunch of uh, awesome projects like the YouTube channels, but they've also produced a couple of uh, independent World War II documentary series 
about the Battle of Berlin and the Rhineland campaign that I was involved with. And of course, they opened up a second channel that I mentioned, the Real-Time History Channel. Uh, our first project on that was the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, week by week, which is now up there on YouTube, if anybody wants to go and check it out. And the upcoming project, can I give it away already this early in the podcast? The upcoming project is uh, Napoleon's downfall, which is going to start with the Russian campaign of 1812. And of course, uh, this is your second foray into the Bonapartes, because you've already dealt with Napoleon III, and now we've got the downfall of the uncle. Yes, I, I don't know. I decided to do it backwards and go with the lesser Bonaparte before the, the OG, if you will. You need to warm up a little bit. I get that. So what drew you to this topic? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm going to be frank here. It's, it's a combination of things. It's sort of, there's intellectual interest and curiosity, but there's also kind of pragmatic business side to what we do. We have to be careful. We have to be selective about what we choose to invest our money in and our time in because it's a business. So on the one hand, when we were brainstorming about what to do, you know, Napoleon came up because it's, you know, it's such an epic period in history. It's so momentous. It's, it's quite important. Not only does it have compelling personalities in that period, but it also has kind of a compelling structural story in history. It's, it's a time where things are moving towards what we would, I guess, commonly consider modernity. There are ideas from the French Revolution. There are old ideas from the Ancien Régime that are still being, and that are going to come back in 1815. There's, you know, economic changes in the UK, especially, that have a big impact on the war. And there's ideas of nationalism and things like that. So there's all these kind of personal things that people are quite interesting, uh, interested in. There's the name recognition factor. Unfortunately, one of the things that we have to keep in mind, in a sense, is, you know, people put in certain search terms to YouTube, right? And so if we just do super obscure topics, we're going to have a hard time drawing an audience. So we have to strike a balance between choosing topics and telling stories that, that are, what's the word I'm looking for, that are kind of fresh in a sense that are not saturated on, on YouTube, like D-Day or something along those lines, but that also have something, that have some kind of hook to draw people in. And then we can tell them all sorts of other things that they might not have thought about or tell it in a different way, but we need to sort of balance those out. And when we were brainstorming, we felt that the Russian campaign kind of had a lot of really fascinating elements. It's not total war in the industrial, you know, World War One and after sense or World War One and two sense, but there's important steps in the totalization of war, uh, also in the kind of ideology, ideological aspect that's behind it. And it's also a substantial campaign. It's sort of five or six months long. So it gives us a chance to follow it as it goes, but also add in some other aspects of the story as well, where we can take some more time. So I think all those factors came together and we decided to go for it. Plus, we were confident that we could find enough illustrations and caricatures and that sort of thing to properly illustrate it. Because, of course, that's another factor in what we can choose to do, right? Yeah, something I don't have to worry about, fortunately. So that makes me curious. Um, was there any discussion of starting earlier or with a different campaign or were you always set on Russia? No, we weren't always set on Russia. We batted around a few different ideas, but uh, that's where we ended up. I think, 
I, it's a good question, actually. I, I can't remember all the discussions in the heat of the moment. I think mostly of earlier ideas we had, like maybe the Crimean War, but then again, you know, it's quite drawn out and there's a big long siege and sometimes it's tough to shape that in a way that, that the audience can relate to and, and continuously find interesting. As far as the Napoleonica, yeah, we talked about like Napoleon's rise, where we'd sort of start with the Italian campaigns and maybe finish with something along the lines of 1806 in Jena or Austerlitz or something along those lines. But we ended up settling on Russia and uh, I, can't, I can't pinpoint like the exact turning point, the exact moment that we talked, that we decided on Russia. But I think, well, part of the reason is we want to do several seasons of this. So the Russian campaign would be the first season. The campaign in Central Europe, so what is today Germany, will be the second season, so the 1813 campaign, and then the 100 days afterwards that end in Waterloo. So that, our hope anyway, is that if this all goes well, we can kind of have a Napoleon's downfall, sort of season one Russia, season two Central Europe, and like season three, the 100 days. So it fit quite well in the storyteller's dramatic arc, if you will, and in practical terms of seasons in, in the business model that we're, trying to, that we're trying to put in place. So you've adopted this, uh, this topic. You're trying to sink your teeth in. Where did you start? What was your approach? Well, we wanted to adopt our, the formula that has worked for us that you know, gave the Great War its success in the first place before I joined uh, the, the team, so to speak but also the format that we've sort of tinkered with a bit in a couple of the independent series, but also on the Real-Time History Channel with the, the Franco-Prussian War. So we're going to structure it as a narrative that's mostly chronological, but we're trying to stretch that and play with that as creatively as we can to inject some other elements. So it'll be a bit of a new take on our, our real-time history concept. So for the Franco-Prussian War and for the Great War, it was sort of one historical week is covered in one weekly episode. Now, in this case, we're going to adjust it because we're in the pre-railway era and speed kind of has a different meaning in a sense. And that has an impact on then how our audience will experience it and how we can also write it. So we can't really have several weeks of episodes on YouTube where the same kinds of things keep happening. Okay, the Grande Armée is advancing and the Russians are retreating, or the Grande Armée is retreating and freezing and the Russians are pursuing. No doubt this makes for awesome texts, and for a very hardcore audience, they'd be with us every step, every painful frozen step of the way, so to speak. But in the sort of YouTube economy and in the modern media economy, if you will, the attention economy, as they say, we have to make some adjustments. So we have to make sure that we structure that narrative in a way where something will be happening, something interesting and dynamic will be happening in every episode. So we will, you know, some episodes will cover one day when there's a big battle. And some episodes will cover a couple of weeks when there's some maneuvering and pursuing and, and that sort of thing. So that we can kind of strike that balance between the chronological narrative moving ahead and what's reasonable to expect our audience to continue paying uh, attention to. Now, we're not just going to focus on battles, of course. We are also going to focus on some themes. And this is what, you know, stretching the 
the limits of each episode allows us to do as well. We don't want to just kind of, and then this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Then you sort of, it can be exciting, but you fall into a bit of a philosophy of history that it's a bunch of dates and names and battles. And those are extremely important in history. And a lot of our audience love those, and so do we, or love them in the sense that we find them interesting. Obviously, I don't love battles. They're terrible. But we want to weave in, you know, where do historians debate about things? Or where's the beginning of the construction of modern Russian nationalism? And how can we see some points where that is then later used to create Russian nationalism right in the 19th century? Those types of questions, we want to take some time and, and work on those. So that's how we're trying to make space for those. We're also going to have some bonus episodes for people who are kind enough and generous enough to support us on Patreon or on Nebula. So those will be, quote unquote, behind a paywall, so to speak. If people are really into it, want to support us, they get extra, some extra content, which won't be necessary to see to follow the, the main series. Um, yeah, and we want to do it as we have done uh, since I joined the team, at least. I, I can't really speak to the period before that. We want to follow the non-marshals and non-emperors as much as possible. So the focus is not going to be on Alexander and Napoleon, and it's not even going to be primarily on the marshals or the Russian generals. Of course, they play their part. They, they get airtime. Their decisions are discussed, and we explain you know, what they're trying to do and what happens. We quote them from time to time. But the majority of what we're trying to convey, if we have a point of view, it's the rank and file when we have sources, which is, you know, that's somewhat limited, but at least the officer class, because that's where we really have a lot more material. In terms of literature, thankfully, I'm in a position to read English, French, and German fluently. I have, let's say, lower intermediate Russian, so that helps me when we're deciphering caricature captions and stuff or picture captions from archives but we're also working with a public historian in moscow who's providing us some uh, information from the latest russian language scholarship and that's going to allow us we hope to kind of cover all our bases we will dip into some published primary sources as well when we really need to find something a quote for a particular event or on a particular topic but there's been so much good stuff published in those languages and all those languages that, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We're not trying to write a scholarly article. Uh, we we want to base this series on scholarly research, and there's lots of that. And we quote liberally from primary accounts, whether they come through secondary or we consult them ourselves. That's kind of one of the hallmarks as well, is uh, it's not just me narrating the thing, like we, we quote from people who were there multiple times in every in every episode so that's kind of that's what we try to do you've now got i mean you guys have been doing this a while and you've now got a huge number of historical events under your belt that you've covered i mean stuff from you know things that everybody knows about to um i actually just watched your uh, episode on the ottoman italian war which i don't think is probably the most covered historical topic on youtube so really running the gamut here, what stands out about this story, this, this event? You know, I thought a lot about that uh, when you sent me the questions before this interview. Spoiler alert, folks, I'm not completely going off the cuff here. I mean, I have to put some thought into these, into these questions. Uh, it's a great question. It was a hard one for me to answer. 
because during my you know graduate studies I sort of bracketed this period a little bit. I, my degrees in what the German-speaking world is called uh, Geschichte der Neuzeit, so the history of new time, which means modern history. But that essentially goes, you know, from the the Renaissance to the end of the First World War. And I ended up focusing mostly on the 16th and 17th centuries, or 17th and 18th, let's say, and then the early 20th. So. I, I know my basics around the uh, revolutionary and Napoleonic periods, but I've never worked with them in detail. And as far as my professional career is concerned, 1870 is the oldest period I've really worked with, the Franco-Prussian War. So I think what ended up striking me as I was doing the reading is kind of this combination of how that world is quite modern in terms of its ideas or philosophy, uh, the way that the authorities and the state are trying to organize and how they see the political philosophy. And it's also profoundly sort of pre-modern at the same time in terms of uh, the way that rural people still live and think and function. You have these like rational systems of administration that are calculated out. You have mass arms manufacture. I mean, it's not modern factories, but still it's, you know, mass pseudo-industrial manufacture of arms. You have modern ideas like nationalism and peoples and all this kind of stuff. But then you also have like Russian irregular Bashkir cavalry with bows and arrows. And you have French conscripts who don't know left from right. So they put hay in one boot and straw in the other boot. And the sergeant training them says, turn towards the straw and turn towards the hay. And then they do it that way. And then you have something that seems from another time, like 25 year military service in Russia because you're a serf. Right. So I think that those uh, contradictions between the modern and pre-modern that coexist, that's what uh, that's what I think really struck me. In addition to the fact, of course, we don't have any photographs. And so that's a challenge for Flo, who is, is the one responsible for illustrating all of our projects. It's a challenge for him because he's got to go and find new places where they keep repositories of digitized caricatures or sketches from artists who were with both of the armies or now this is this can be dangerous but of course or paintings after the fact and then of course <laughs> raises the question how do we use those and how much do we explain not what they show but what they are themselves as a historical object so all kinds of wrinkles there that um, struck me about the period one thing I've I've been curious to ask you when I'm doing my writing and research sometimes I find stuff and I think I cannot wait to get this out there to tell people about this. You know, an event or a little detail or a character even. Have you encountered any of those over the course of this project? Yes, to, to put it shortly. There, there's tons of stuff I come across. And although, you know, we're planning quite a detailed treatment of the campaign, right? I think we have 17 regular episodes and four to six bonus episodes, depending on length, planned. That's quite a significant treatment of this campaign. I don't know if it's been dealt with in this level of depth before. There are some great videos on YouTube about uh, the different Napoleonic campaigns, no question, but I'm not sure that's one is, is so substantial and takes our sort of social history influenced approach. So I've, there's tons of stuff that I want to put in. Uh, some of it I have to cut, which is very frustrating, of course. But one of the stories that we want to tell 
is the physical story. So the story of the maps, if you will, the story of the land and its role. Because of course, everybody knows Russia has a very harsh climate when you're trying to wage war there. And it didn't work out for Napoleon, uh, as it didn't work out for some other people who tried later in history. And, you know, it's easy to kind of just fall back on the on the reductionist uh, side of that story, you can say, ah, yeah, well, obviously it was too big and then it got too cold and everybody froze. And that's just how it is in Russia. End of story. Well, we wanted to go a bit beyond that because I think it's worth trying to uh, tell a bit more of a complete version of that story. And so we're working with some professional cartographers in Canada, a team called Project 44. They've worked on a lot of, as their name betrays, uh, they've worked on a lot of World War II mapping projects and they are working with us to create some really cool maps where we can try to show not only the big picture so the different routes that the invasion took to and from uh, moscow but also that we can zoom in when there's a battle and show a bit more detail and try to show i don't i don't want to promise too much because i'm not the guy responsible for the digital maps but we want to try to give a sense of the terrain which is so important to military history, right? If you're standing on a hill, you know, you multiply your force application uh, by, by several times. So we want to put in the correct old road system so that we can really show where the roads are going and how they're important strategically, but also tactically when we focus down on a particular, on a particular battle. So we've been working with them quite intensively, even just to get all the borders right, of course, uh, because most of the most of the default digital maps you can get is today's border, so we got to go back and retrace everything. So, I think the the story of the land is an important one. You know, if we highlight every swamp that played a role in a battle, like covering someone's flank or preventing the cavalry from outflanking somebody, that's important, and you don't see that visually uh, done very often. One of the other stories uh, is, of course, the international aspect, right? Again, we think of it as French and Russians, but the French only made up half of the Grande Armée. There are German speakers from not only from the Kingdom of Prussia, which is allied with Napoleon, but from the states of the Confederation of the Rhine. There are tens of thousands from the Italian peninsula and the multiple kingdoms that were there. Poles from the Duchy of Warsaw that Napoleon created. There are the Bashkirs I mentioned. There are Cossacks. There are Tatar cavalry. There's a whole bunch of Baltic German nobility who are generals and officers in the Russian army, etc., etc. So, and we want to make sure that we give them voices, so to speak, and we quote from their accounts. Well, maybe not, there, there are no Bashkir accounts, but whenever we have them, to give that impression that it's not just the French and not just, uh, you know, great Russians, to use a bit of an outdated term. We also want to put a bit of focus on some of the smaller battles. So everyone knows Baradino, everybody, or most people I would say know the Berezina, crossing of the Berezina River. Some people might know Malo Yaroslavets, that it's kind of a bit of a turning point in October, even though it's smaller, but that's pretty much it. But there were a lot of other armed clashes and they're quite fascinating in how they shape the campaign. And so I think we, we definitely want to tell those. And because of the language skills we have in the team, not just me, but, but also uh, Sofia, our partner in Moscow, that we can do that to a level that I don't think I've seen before. 
uh, at least in any kind of documentary. So small battles like Kobrin in southern, what is today southern Belarus, the Saxons fight against the third Russian army that was in the south that really doesn't get much press. And they lose and they get surrounded and they surrender and there's a Saxon general that's captured and so on and so forth. Or the siege of Riga, which goes on for the entire length of the campaign and that's kind of Prussia's main contribution. Prussia doesn't really want to be in this campaign, right? Napoleon forces them to ally with him. And so the Prussian Auxiliary Corps marches up to Riga on the Baltic and besieges it for months and months and months. And they have a sort of live and let live arrangement with the Russians. And that hasn't been written about substantially since 1912. And so that's one of the, one of the sort of quote-unquote sideshows of this campaign that we think are actually, if you put them together, they're an integral part of the campaign and we want to make sure that we cover it. The battle at Magilov, for example, in the summer, this French victory nearly leads, in a sense, I'm stretching it a bit here, but this is how counterfactuals work. They're trying to surround, there, there are three Russian armies at first, right? Two main ones. Uh, and the one by, led by Prince Bagration is in danger of being surrounded at the beginning. So they're desperately trying to surround him, cut him off, and wipe him out, and then essentially the French will have a pretty good chance of winning the campaign. Now, they don't end up being able to do it, and there are different reasons why, but they very nearly do it, and there are a couple of important battles that are a part of that, especially Magilov, because Davou just about forces Bagration to, to be cut off as a result of that battle. He stops him from joining with the other Russian army. Now, eventually he does join and, well, the rest, as I say, is history. But um, seeing all the points where it could have gone a different way is something that I think is part of the story we absolutely have to tell. Well, we've come this far. I don't think we can ignore him any longer. The big man, Napoleon. What was it like for you to write about this man? What was your opinion of him coming in? Did it change at all? Was it intimidating? Tell us about your relationship with Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm pretty naive, or I didn't know a lot about Napoleon before, other than the sort of general knowledge, or general knowledge of someone with a graduate degree in history would have, not in that, not focusing on that particular period. Now, I, I will emphasize that we don't focus on him, right, uh, or on Alexander. But of course, we talk about them. You, you can't not. It's hard to say how much my assessment or opinion or relationship, if you will, with him changed just because I didn't have a lot of strongly formed opinions to begin with. I think one of the things that struck me, you know, reading more of mostly officers' accounts was really, I mean, he was an absolutely godlike, towering figure with an unbelievable reputation for working miracles on the battlefield, sort of unbeatable reputation. Millions of people really thought that he was some kind of Superman and were willing to march into Russia. And even when they were suffering and starving and exhausted and freezing, Hundreds of thousands of them still thought, well, I mean, look at Austerlitz, look at Jena, he's going to turn it around. The genius of the emperor is going to turn it around. It always has for 15 years or whatever it was at that point. 
And that, uh, that kind of struck me. And of course, it made me think then about people who have blind faith in other charismatic leaders over the course of history and those commonalities. But I was also struck by how many mistakes he made in the campaign and how unclear he was about his goals and how kind of he contradicted himself a lot when he was talking about why he went to war and what his objectives were in the war. First, he's talking about a decisive, typical decisive Clausewitzian, well, we would say now, of course, Clausewitz himself was on the Russian side in this campaign, like a decisive victory, need to get that as soon as possible and then we're good, versus he talks about, oh yeah, we'll, we'll march into maybe the middle of Belarus and then we'll set up camp, we'll spend the winter, we'll campaign again in 1813, which is... I mean, make up your mind, man. You're not likely to win a campaign when you don't know why or how you're waging it. I think that is something that I didn't expect that much. I expected genius, military genius Napoleon has a clear plan and it doesn't work out because the particular conditions of this campaign. And it wasn't uh, that simple. And so that's another uh, aspect that uh, we focus on, especially in the beginning episodes. You didn't come into this with a lot of foreknowledge, but with that caveat, was there anything you found surprising as you as you worked on this? Oh yeah. And not not just in the sense, right, like not just in the sense of, oh, these are new this is new information or new facts or whatever it is. But I was, I admit, a bit surprised at the degree of violence and cruelty outside the battlefield, like off the battlefield. In this period, of course, I knew that it occurred, but I was more familiar with it in the context of some of the wars in North America, like what the Americans call the French and Indian War and what we call the Seven Years War or the, the War of 1812, where you have, you know, it's rough and ready colonial war and you have different cultures involved with uh, native peoples who have different concept of, of warfare and so on. But... For here, I was struck by the degree of that. Like, especially we did an awesome bonus episode on prisoners of war. And man, you did not want to be taken prisoner. Uh, most of them died. And like the French were just executing them on the long marches if they couldn't keep up. Colincourt actually personally reports this to Napoleon. He's sort of, he's, he's aghast at these mass executions of thousands. And so uh, that was something I didn't expect. Not that I thought it was all chivalry and stuff. I mean, I'm not that naive. I've studied warfare for a long time, but I didn't expect that. And then on the Russian side, of course, because the nature of the war was more extreme than some of the previous campaigns, you had sort of partisan warfare, and then you had the Grand Armée sort of depriving the peasants of all their food and stealing everything from them uh, to feed themselves. You end up having... A situation where they want revenge so the Cossacks who are guarding the French and other European prisoners sometimes sold them to local peasants who are starving and traumatized and angry and then they they sometimes tortured and killed the prisoners the villagers they might stick them in the big traditional Russian ovens in their homes and burn them they buried some of them alive I've got a chilling account of a Russian who was there when they're basically like, yep, we tied them up, chucked them all in the hole, buried them and watched the soil move for a while. And 
there's some cannibalism involved as well, um, which we still have to see how we can not anger YouTube's algorithm, but also, you know, acknowledge that that happened because I think it's quite important. Cannibalism, especially on the Franco-European side when they don't have any food anymore. So all of this is quite modern in its kind of absolutely unchained violence. And I didn't expect it to that degree. And to sort of, I mean, that's pretty heavy stuff. To sort of lighten it a little bit uh, when we're talking about war, I was surprised that the Royal Navy was hanging around in the, and sailing around in the Baltic to support the Russians. And they show up off the coast of Riga to support the garrison. They show up off the coast of East Prussia to scare the French into thinking they might land there. So the French transfer some troops that way. And they try to interrupt French supply lines because, of course, they were trying to send supplies by ship in the Baltic East, closer to the Russian front. And uh, I didn't expect much of a British role. And of course, it is limited, but they're still, they're there. They're involved. And on that note, I was surprised at how much Russia depended on trade with the UK. And that's one of the reasons why the war starts is because Russia was forced by Napoleon to join the continental system and stop trading with the UK, which then, you know, tanked its economy. And then the Tsar unilaterally kind of says, no, we're not doing this anymore. We were out of the continental system. And that's one of the things that starts the war. And I didn't realize that. That was, uh, that was a good reminder for me of some of the economic systems and structures of Europe at the time. And there's a strategic element too there because the Royal Navy is relying on those Russian forests to provide, you know, wood and pitch and all that stuff. Masts. It's funny to think of pitch as being like the oil of the 18th century, but they really needed that pitch to keep those ships afloat. Indeed. So now that you are, uh, I guess, approaching the end of this project, what is coming for you in the future? Any ideas, ambitions, anything you'd like to tease for the future? Yeah, well, I mean, we, the project hasn't launched yet and we're still, you know, we're still working on it. It's not completely finished yet. It's going to run until the end of June, I think. But it's coming out, Napoleon's Downfall is coming out uh, March 3rd. And after that, if all goes well, we want to have Napoleon's Downfall Season 2, the campaign in 1813 with Leipzig, but also with lesser known but really important battles like Lützen or Bautzen, which are French victories, and everyone's worried he's turning the tide again. So that's going to hopefully come in fall on the Real Time History Channel. And as far as other work, other projects of mine is concerned, at the end of this, at the end of next month on March 27th, or next month at the time of recording, I'll be giving a battle guide virtual tour of the Battle of Sedan in 1870 with Battle Guide Virtual Tours, a British-based uh, virtual battlefield tour company, which is pretty cool. So we sort of splice in satellite views with archival images, with kind of enhanced maps and uh, some audiovisual elements as well to kind of give people a virtual tour of the battlefield that created Germany indirectly and uh, helped sow the seeds for the long road to the First World War, if I want to exaggerate slightly. That's not much of an exaggeration. That's one of those battles that I think people should know more about. It's, I mean, not only because it's the end of the Bonapartes. <laughs> no, but it's also a great illustration of 
the importance of effective command and control, the importance of an effective general staff, and the importance of modern artillery. So, what about the future for real-time history? Is there anything you guys have in the pipeline? Oh, we've got a thousand things in our fantasy pipelines, but uh, at the moment we're really focused on this year's two Napoleon series. Of course, we're continuing with the Great War channel as well, and we've also mixed that up a little bit. So, after the armistice, we were covering all the post-armistice conflicts like the Russian Civil War or the war between Poland and Bolshevik Russia or the Greco-Turkish War and, and all those kinds of things, all the peace treaties and how they were put together and how some failed. And But we wanted to take a bit of a, a different approach this year and mix it up. So we've started talking, doing some episodes about some of the wars that come before 1914, like the Italo-Turkish War. We did the Russo-Japanese War, but we're also going to do the famous slash infamous First Balkan War as well, 1912-13, which is uh, something we've been, we've had a lot of requests for. And we're going to revisit some of the most interesting battles of 1914 to 1918, but we're going to approach them in a bit of a different way, not just a chronological narrative. We're going to kind of do a bit more of an analysis of them from a historian's point of view. So lots of interesting new material coming on, uh, on on the Great War Channel as well. We've tossed around some other ideas. I'm not making any promises here. These are just ideas we've tossed around. Like maybe we find a way to do the Crimean War and make sure that, that it can be dynamic enough despite the sort of eternal siege. Or maybe we try to weave in some kind of series at some point about Napoleonic small wars. So like, I don't know, the Russo-Ottoman War or the Russo-Swedish War or any number of others. Uh, that take place during that period, package them um, together in a way. So, you know, we, we've got a lot of things um, coming up, but we have even more in our imaginations, let's say. So, last thing, where and when can people tune in to see this series? Yes, Napoleon's Downfall, the Russian campaign of 1812, starts March 3rd. The first episode is coming out on the Real-Time History channel on YouTube. So if you just go to YouTube, search Real-Time History, it'll come up. And of course, we'd be happy if any of your listeners are pleased enough with what we do to support Real-Time History on Patreon as well, because that kind of helps us do what we do. And of course, I want to thank you for having me on today, and I hope that uh, you and all your listeners enjoyed a little insight into how the YouTube History documentary Sausage is made. Well, it was my pleasure to have you. Um, I actually have been a fan of what you guys do for a long time. You know, I feel like you have an approach that helped me see that there's a market for this stuff. You know, I always loved history and I always wanted more kind of granular detail um, from popular history stuff. And lo and behold, there was someone doing it. Well, let's hope that uh, there's a lot of folks uh, who, who share that opinion out there and who are going to enjoy Napoleon's downfall as well. Well, fingers crossed, but I have a feeling you guys are going to do well. We hope so. We're, we're betting on it anyway. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti. 
If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.